Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The Guardian. Politics and football collided this week with the Prime Minister swooping in to try and save the beautiful game he admits he doesn't even watch. I'm Heather Stewart, political editor of The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. Be in no doubt that we don't uh, support it and uh, support the creation of this European Super League. I think it's uh, not in the interests of uh, of fans. It's not in the interests of of football. How can it be right to have a situation in which you create a kind of uh, cartel that stops... It was a shocking uh, announcement for football fans when late on Sunday, 12 of the world's biggest football clubs announced they would start a breakaway tournament. Arsenal, Chelsea, Liverpool, Manchester City, Manchester United and Tottenham all signed up for the European Super League, unleashing an almighty backlash. Unlike almost anything else in the world these days, it united ministers, opposition parties and fans across the spectrum. Just 48 hours later and all six English clubs decided to pull out. Commentators are saying it was down to the fans voicing their anger, but the clubs might also have been alarmed by Boris Johnson's dire threat to drop a legislative bomb to stop the deal from going ahead. So why did a government generally opposed to interfering in the free market get so involved? And as the Greensill scandal involving David Cameron rumbles on, a fresh lobbying story emerged with the BBC obtaining text messages between Boris Johnson and entrepreneur James Dyson about a tax issue, with the Prime Minister promising to fix it for him. Later on, we hear from former special advisers about the do's and don'ts for lobbyists. Plus, our political correspondent Aubrey Allegretti asks Jane Ozan, director of the Global Interfaith Commission on LGBT Lives, why she resigned from the government's LGBT advisory panel. That's all in this week's Politics Weekly. But first, to dive into this fascinating story from the world of football, which is uniting a nation, and for a roundup of the latest stories from Westminster, I'm joined by John Crace, The Guardian's parliamentary sketchwriter. John, it's lovely to have you on. Let's start with this European Super League story that's dominated the news ever since the bombshell announcement late on Sunday. You're a football fan. How did you first take the news about Spurs? My first reaction was amazed that they'd allowed Spurs into it um, (laughs) on the grounds that they can't have watched them play very often because... Or maybe they just wanted somebody who would who would prop up the league indefinitely, you know, and have have a sort of whipping boy to come last. But um, I mean, there's been a lot of chat about European Super League for years now, and nobody ever thought it was going to happen. I think the last two days have sort of shown us sort of why, because it's all fallen apart within two days. You would have thought that. 
the club chairman and the board would have realised that it was a sort of non-starter. Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because it, it wasn't only the fans who were horrified. It was it was also, you know, politicians waded into it and the government was very quick in its response. And obviously, Boris Johnson is now painting himself as the saviour of uh, football. It's slightly surprising, isn't it? Well, I mean, it's astonishing. <laughs> but I, I, I take a sort of more jaundiced view. I kind of think that the politicians saw you know, how the fans were responding and also sort of people you know public sort of figures in football were responding as well people like sir gary lineker and uh, phil and uh, gary neville and they were outraged by the idea so i think it's been quite an easy win for the government this one Yes, yeah, so you think this was Boris Johnson seeing which way the wind was blowing and deciding he, he he loves being a populist, doesn't he? Deciding he was going to be on the popular side of it because he's not a man who's previously shown much interest in football, is he? It's fair to say. Or indeed sport of any kind, really. To be fair, also Oliver Doughton, our, the, the Minister for Digital Culture, Media and Sport, has always looked happiest when he's handing over sport to somebody else. He doesn't you know, he's never shown much interest in sport, the sports side of the brief. But I think this was one where you couldn't go wrong. Um, John, do you think much will change as a result of this? So Johnson suggested at his press conference, he talked about football as one of the great glories of this country's cultural heritage. And he seemed to be hinting that, that you know, he, he might be looking for more fan involvement, for example, in, in running the team. Do you, do you think it'll change? Possibly, but I, I tend to be a cynic about this kind of thing. My, my feeling is that it'll just go back to how things were. You know, I mean, one of the reasons that none of the German clubs were involved was because they have written into their constitutions that the fans have a 51% voting majority. So sort of the money people can never really sort of take over the club to, to the detriment of the fans. And our own Jess Elgott asked the Boris about this at the press over yesterday. And Boris didn't really seem to have much grasp about like, what the German model was or whatever. I, I think the, the ESL is sort of done away with and it is sort of dead in the water. Whether it's going to sort of bring an end to sort of foreign ownership of English clubs, you know, like sort of, you know, so that football became a sort of millionaire's playground with the big clubs becoming just the the um, toy of foreign billionaires. Whether, whether that should change, somehow I doubt it. Mm, it's talking foreign billionaires this is a very good link John to, mm-hmm. <laughs> to the story we were going to go on to talk about which was um this this lobbying row that, that won't go away you know the, the Greensill and David Cameron issue is still rumbling along papers are still publishing those pictures of David Cameron in a Saudi tent with Lex Greensill which <laughs> just, just don't don't look great and then today there's another story the BBC has which is about James Dyson 
texting Boris Johnson during the pandemic to say effectively, uh, you know, if we help you out making a few ventilators, will we have to pay more tax? And the Prime Minister seems to have texted him back to say, don't worry, old chap, we'll fix it. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's pretty scandalous, isn't it? But will these stories have cut through? Sometimes those things rumble on for ages, don't they, without the public really taking very much notice? I don't really know, is the simple answer. I mean, I think it ought to cut through, and and Labour certainly believe that it was it will cut through, which is sort of why they've been sort of Rachel Reeves among others have been going on and on and on trying to sort of link it to Tory sleaze in general and not just sort of David Cameron. But I mean, we've got the local elections coming up at the beginning of next month, and it will be extraordinary you know it'll be it'll be fascinating to see how much cut through i mean because you somehow feel that you know maybe boris will get loads of uh as a real surge from having you know the narrative that he saved football when in fact it was pretty much the fans that saved football or whether some of this tory sleaze stuff is going to cut through Mm. You mentioned the local elections there. It's a really big set of local elections, isn't it, On in May? Uh, let's talk about Keir Starmer a bit. He had a bit of a rocky attempt to go to the pub earlier in the week, didn't he? Did you see that in Bath? Oh, yeah. He got he got slung out by somebody who said, we don't want you in here. Get out. Get out. So, I mean, he kind of left. <laughs> but it's, it, again, it's a sort of weird one because it feels very much like the Tories have given up on London, for instance. So, I mean, in London, there is sort of local elections and sort of, and also the the mayoral campaign. And I was one of the six people, I think, who logged in to Sean Bailey, the Tory candidate's campaign on Monday. And it was one <laughs> of the most bizarre things I've ever seen. For a start, his logo looks like some kind of 1960s washing powder kind of <laughs> uh, advert. And B, there is nothing on his campaign, literally you know, his, his slogans, that says that he is conservative. So I don't know whether it is that sort of Sean Bailey has given up on the, you know, that thinks being associated with the Tories is a bad look for him in London, or whether it's that the Tories have decided that he doesn't stand a prayer and by all accounts he's 20 points behind. <laughs> You're making me feel sorry for him, John. Well, but but outside I really London... I <laughs> feel sorry for him. <laughs> but outside London, Labour will be hoping, won't they, not to go backwards at least from where they were in the 2019 general election. But they've said repeatedly they're very worried. It's probably expectations management partly, but they've said they're very worried about this idea of a, of a vaccine bounce, aren't they? That not, not only will the public think, thank goodness Boris Johnson saved football, but also thank goodness Boris Johnson has vaccinated the nation. And it's quite difficult for Labour to get a look in, isn't it? When you've got the Prime Minister can call a press conference whenever he likes, you know, ostensibly for public information, COVID purposes, but also, you know, quite handy on the political front. Yeah. And I and I think Labour are again a right to be worried about the vaccine bounce because to give the Tories their due, the vaccine is something that they've got right. And on June the twenty first, you know, I mean, Boris has made a great deal about this is sort of data not 
updates and you know the irreversibility of it but if some variant turns up it's it's hard to see how boris can stick to the irreversible narrative if you know he when he's also talking as he was in the press conference on tuesday night about the fact that a third wave of the virus is almost inevitable yeah, absolutely. And and also, I think there, there was a sense when the roadmap was first announced that on the 21st of June, you know, it was sort of with one bound, we would all be free and almost there would be no restrictions at all. And it now looks as that as though that perhaps won't be the case, doesn't it? When certainly if you listen to Chris Whitty and Patrick Vallance, the sense is there still will be quite a few restrictions probably on our everyday lives, although, you know, a lot, a lot fewer than we've become used to in the last couple of months. I, I think it's just bizarre to imagine that suddenly you're going to go back to having a state, you know, no masks, no sanitizer, literally go and do whatever you want, have 80,000 people at a England v Croatia in the, um, in the Euros on June the 22nd. That sounds so improbable and implausible and also kind of quite dangerous that I, that I don't believe it will happen. Yeah, I think you may be right. Um, another thing that's not going to happen, John, just lastly, is uh, the the televised, the long-awaited televised press briefings with Allegra Stratton, the, the Prime Minister's press secretary. She was hired with a sort of great fanfare and her arrival eventually prompted the departure of, of Dominic Cummings, didn't it? And Lee Kane from Number 10 in a kind of power struggle. And, and now we're, we're never going to see her doing that job on the telly. I, I always sort of thought, that Boris and Carrie must have spent too much time watching early or or re-watching early episodes of The West Wing um, <laughs> early on in lockdown. It could possibly be partly to do with the fact that I mean, Boris has realised that having the press secretary on hand to answer difficult questions three times a week may not be to his advantage. I mean, when he's got a good news to sort of tell about the vaccine and on that, then, you know, then Boris is quite keen for all this stuff. But there was a moment yesterday, again, on, on Tuesday night's press conference, where Boris was sort of ambushed right at the end by a very difficult question about Jennifer Akuri and did he, uh, had he behaved with honesty and integrity. You know, you can just imagine that if, you know, Allegra Stratton, press secretary, wouldn't want to have to answer that kind of question on TV three times a week. So she's now been been seconded to the COP26 rota, which um, I, I don't know if that counts as a sort of promotion or just a move sideways or that she wasn't up for it anyway. I feel the questions she's going to face there are not going to be quite so um, controversial and certainly not so personal as uh, no. Jennifer R. Curie or Lex Greensill or any of these very difficult things that yeah. might not have looked great to be stonewalling repeatedly on the telly. Um, J John, it's lovely as ever to chat. Thanks ever so much. Oh, thank you for having me on. It's always, I love it. For all the latest on the European Super League, do download The Guardian's Football Weekly. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. After the break, we'll demystify the shady world of lobbying with two former special advisers. We'll be right back.
Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, "What the f- are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Heather Stewart. Now, David Cameron's role at the financial firm Greensill Capital has prompted multiple inquiries by parliamentary committees, the government and the civil service and he's now been asked to release the full texts he sent to the Chancellor Rishi Sunak at the start of last year. And, as we mentioned with John Crace, Boris Johnson is also under fire over chummy texts about fixing a tax issue for billionaire businessman James Dyson. Labour say these two stories show that Tory sleaze is back and have called for a radical overhaul of lobbying rules to prevent ex-ministers and civil servants profiting from their time in government. But what is lobbying? What makes a successful lobbyist? And when they promise access to key decision makers, does that mean anything more than having mates in high places? Well, we had access to Polly McKenzie and Salma Shah. Polly McKenzie was a special advisor to former Deputy Prime Minister Nick Clegg and now runs the Demos think tank. And Salma Shah was a special advisor to various Conservative ministers, including the former Chancellor Sajid Javid. She's now a consultant for Portland Communications. Our political correspondent Peter Walker spoke to them about their experiences dealing with lobbyists. There's been a lot of talk about lobbying, but lobbying to people who don't really know it conjures up this image of like shadowy texts and kind of big business PR people trying to kind of shape what government does. But Polly, it's a lot more broad than that. I mean, what contact did you have it when you were in uh, in government? Well, you know, all sorts of people have something to say to government about what they think government should be doing. And actually being open to conversations, whether it's about helping to roll out broadband more quickly or making sure that we are talking to environmentalists about you know, their views about exactly how to manage house building with you know land conservation, or whether it's renters who want more houses or house builders who say that they need subsidy, whatever it might be. If you're in government and you're not, talking to the people, the businesses, the civil society organisations who you're trying to influence and impact, then you're not really doing your job. And lobbying essentially is them coming in to tell you what they think. So long as you're listening to voices of all sides, and so long as you're not then doing favours for mates or accepting bribes, obviously, to do what's in the interests of one company, but not in the interests of society as a whole, right? Um giving out, you know, contracts to your friends and relations, unless they happen to be, through a competitive process, the very best doing the work. You know, there's plenty of ways to do it wrong. But the idea that all lobbying is bad is just as wrong, in my view. And I guess the interesting thing, too, is it's not just kind of big companies who lobby, too. It's like charities as well. Salma, in your kind of role, I mean, how close to ministers do the lobbying get? Does the lobbying usually kind of come to a kind of lower level? Did any lobbyists kind of cross your path? 
There's always an attempt for people to try and talk at lots of different levels, you know, if they're campaigning about something. I think the interesting thing, having now done it sort of within government and sort of received lobbying and sort of looking at this new story now, is that it's painted as if there's something that people don't know or that there's some secret hidden world going on. Actually, by and large, lobbying is pretty transparent and you can connect and link back to conversations and things that companies might be doing to be able to influence something that they might think is wrong, for example. And when lobbyists do come into contact with you, what normally happens is that you you take in what they've got to say, you'll sort of assess what you think is just totally self-interested versus the compromise that you need to reach in order to get a policy through. And actually, it's a little bit of give and take. And you also have to acknowledge that actually, if you're sort of trying to bring in policy that's going to add an extra burden of regulation to a particular industry, it's probably worth listening to that industry to think about the unintended consequences you might have. You know, it is an important part of the process. And most of the time, actually, whilst lobbying is important, it's not like 100%. You're not just going to walk in through the door, have a chat with the minister and be like, okay, great, we've gotten what we wanted. It's all about compromises and sharing information and knowledge and trying to come to an accommodation. And in terms of the mechanics of how it works, do special advisors kind of act as a gatekeeper or do people go to civil servants? I mean, how does it normally work in practical terms? I think that, you know, special advisors can absolutely, they can take a lot more meetings than the minister can, they're a lot less busy. And so they often will be, yeah, having meetings, trying to gauge, exactly as Salma says, you know, how much of this is self-interest and actually how much of it is is really helpful, useful information. And, you know, I always used as a rule of thumb, if anybody I met couldn't explain what their kind of opponents or people who disagreed with them thought was their best case, as it were, if they couldn't see the other side of the argument and explain that and then still explain why they thought they were right, I kind of didn't really take them seriously. In the end, though, it's absolutely, it helps if you happen to sidle up to a minister at a, a drinks reception. It helps you to get a meeting, right? But it doesn't get you the policy that you want. Because the crucial thing is you have to have a really good case for what you're saying. There will be armies of civil servants making the counter case, trying to pick your facts apart. And it's one of the, I think, the myth of lobbying, actually, which probably helps ex-ministers to make more money in the market, is that it's about who you know. It really isn't. Actually, who you know can often get you into a mess and massive, massive controversy. Because in the end, it's research, evidence, storytelling, narrative and campaigning that makes the difference, not smoky rooms or glasses of warm white wine. Well, that's really interesting because you were saying just earlier, actually, Selma, that you now work for uh, for Portland, which is a company that does kind of strategy and things like that, but does lobbying too. But because you were in government reasonably recently, you have basically to serve out this two years, we can't lobby. So basically, even when you do get into doing lobbying, then presumably most of the people that you knew in government will no longer be there. So, you know, trying to get access is a bit pointless, isn't it? I mean, not only that, it's not just that, you know, the people that I would have known would no longer be there. But also, I think there's also this sort of awkwardness about even approaching anyone that you worked with I think people should give credit to officials and people that work in government because you know I would never have taken sort of direct lobbying and what I've basically found is just hectoring you know whenever you try to do something people would sort of call you and moan about it but by and large people do behave appropriately and they want things to go through the proper channels and they want things to be properly documented 
And I think people are very conscious of that fact that they don't want to have this murkiness around them and they do want to be transparent because the last thing you want is a situation where you sort of back-channeled and there's been a problem at the end of it um, and then you've got to pick apart why that problem happened. Well, that's, I guess, an interesting point because the reason that lobbying is in the news so much is that David Cameron kind of didn't follow this semi-official kind of etiquette. He just got on his phone and texted ministers or ex-ministers or just people that he knew. Polly, is that a bit of a kind of faux pas in lobbying terms, doing stuff like that? At the very highest level, those kinds of things can and, and do happen. You know, people do have friends. David Cameron has met these people. But also, you know, we saw from the Leveson inquiry, you know, where we suddenly saw the testimonies and the evidence about who was talking to who at, at an elite level, particularly around some newspaper editors or journalists and people in elite politics, there can be a kind of a very informal relationship that happens behind the scenes. That's much more likely to happen with media, in my experience, than it is with businesses. I wonder if David Cameron just took that mode of operating. I don't really know what he was thinking, really. I, I think that it can't, it can't be that hard for ex-prime ministers to make, you know, really quite a lot of money. But I guess once you've spent six years, I guess, billionaire-adjacent that's the thing. You're earning a lot of money or, you know, in the sort of 0.1% of the population richest. But equally, you meet people regularly who basically spend your annual salary on a party. And, and that, I guess, just distorts your perceptions of normality and your expectations about the kind of wealth to which you ought to have access. Well, the only, the only thing that I would sort of counter that with is that actually... We can't claim to know what his motivation was. There's an assumption that it's all about lining one's pockets. I mean, you know, as he himself said, it, it might be because he was worried about this payday lending issue and sort of went to the NHS and he was worried about what was going to happen to Greensill because at the end of that track, there are jobs and, and things like that at risk. And so in that sense, it's a legitimate sort of conversation to have. I think what is at question and rightly why there needs to be an investigation which David Cameron needs to answer some questions for is the manner of the way that those discussions were had. But, you know, I mean, for, for you, Polly, you work with Nick Clegg. You know, he then has gone off to Facebook and become a lobbyist there. And, you know, he will be having interactions. And I'm, I don't know if he had, has any interactions with the British government, but that's a legitimate purpose for somebody who, who has now moved on from public life. Even if you were going out to go into a lobbying position, you sort of start off in the same place as everyone else. The only thing that you have really to your advantage is your knowledge and your skill set. And that does not translate necessarily into sort of picking up the phone and trying to sort of edge your contacts for, for some kind of financial benefit or any other kind of merit. So, so I guess when you take on a job like that, if you're not selling direct contacts, then your skill is just being able to, I don't know, show charities or companies how to kind of navigate this slightly kind of strange world. I mean, probably is that almost like part of what a kind of lobbyist does, a kind of, a kind of map reader, a sort of guide? Yeah, absolutely. It's about knowing which departments at which levels will be having conversations. It's one of those things where often you, you can talk to a smaller department and you feel like you're making progress and you've persuaded them and then along comes the Treasury and overrules you completely. And, and you know, a good lobbyist would have encouraged you to make the case to civil servants at the Treasury or to submit evidence to inquiries or consultations that they're doing over there. You know, we're a think tank. We don't, we don't sell access, but we do 
you know, ministers sometimes attend our roundtables or sessions, but so do civil servants. You have to understand what's going on. You know, as Salma said, you know, if you start regulating an industry without having talked to them about, you know, how they hold their data or, you know, the financial implications, you, you can end up causing really serious damage to the consumers and the citizens who are at the end of the track. But at the same time, whilst obviously David Cameron didn't succeed in getting Greensill this particular access, this particular fund, it wouldn't have been known that he was doing the lobbying he was doing unless some very enterprising journalists had kind of tracked the information down. Because there seems to be this kind of gap that if you're a professional lobbyist, you have to register. But if you're a consultant working for a company, you know, like Cameron was, then whatever you do doesn't really count as lobbying. Do you think those rules need to be tightened? You also have this, you know, idea of some like civil servants having kind of second jobs while still doing their government roles. There is presumably a need for at least some tightening. Yeah, the Bob Crothers revelation was, I found pretty shocking because I don't understand how you can be in charge of taxpayers' money around procurement and then take a second job. Like, you absolutely have to be, you know, a dedicated public servant in that, in any role. If you're you're going to be a big decision maker in Whitehall, you can't, you know, have a portfolio career. That's just madness in my view. I think there has to be some kind of tightening of the definition of what lobbying is. But I think instead of sort of using a sledgehammer to crack a nut, we should perhaps think about actually what is the real issue here and it's transparency. And it may be that a better way of dealing with this is improving transparency laws or even updating things like FOI so that people feel like information is readily available to them if they ask questions. But I think just trying to think about lobbying as a problem sector, I think absolutely has massive unintended consequences for people who actually really depend on lobbying and being able to access decision makers to put their case forward. I guess the issue, Polly, is that most people don't really think about lobbying much until you suddenly get a case like the David Cameron one that's all over the newspapers and someone who might run, you know, even a medium sized business might think, well, you know, I'd have liked to lobby to have access to those loans, but I don't have, you know, the various ministers numbers or things like that. There's going to be quite a few um, in inquiries taking place. There's the official number 10 launch one and there's various committees that are doing them too. I mean, what would you like them to find out? And what, what would you kind of, I don't know, would you like to have kind of just more light shed on the sector? Or would you like to see tighter rules at the end of it? I think the questions around procurement are more troubling. You know, this during the pandemic, the loan scheme, you know, actually was available to loads and loads of people. And we know that there has been actually quite a lot of fraud. So lots of policy mistakes were made at that time. So I think we could over worry about that kind of narrow set of of questions around loans. It's much more to me about the systemic approach to procurement. You know, everyone hates bureaucracy and filling in forms. It's a pain. But the reality is, if you don't have process, then just by default, people lean on giving contracts to people they've met and know and trust. And that that's not right or fair when it is taxpayers' money that is being spent. That is where we need much more change than the idea of lobbying per se. Excellent. Well, that's all really, really fascinating stuff. Salma Shah, Polly McKenzie, thank you for such a fascinating chat. Peter Walker speaking to Polly McKenzie and Salma Shah there. Now, last week, the government announced that it was disbanding its LGBT advisory panel. The panel, which was originally set up under Theresa May, had suffered a series of resignations over the delay in banning conversion therapies. 
One of the advisors who resigned was Jane Ozan, director of the Global Interfaith Commission on LGBT Lives. The Guardian's political correspondent, Aubrey Allegretti, spoke to her to find out more. Jane, it's lovely to have you on. Um, I'd like to start by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself and your background before you were invited onto the government's LGBT panel. And we'll obviously get onto the details of what happened there in a minute. Thank you, Aubrey. Um, it's good to be with you. I, um, I suppose the primary reason why I was invited onto the panel is that I have been very outspoken within the Church of England, the Anglican and Christian faiths, as a woman who struggled coming to terms with her sexuality. I didn't come out as gay and, until I was uh, into my early 40s, and that was after a lifetime of really struggling to get to a point of peace, if you like, trying to reconcile my faith and my sexuality. I suppose I'd had a, a very, what many would call a high-flying career with Kimberly Clark and Procter and & Gamble. I'd been head of marketing at the BBC. And because of my experience in those sectors, I was invited to join something called the Archbishop's Council in 1998. And that put me in a very senior position within the Church of England. I was seen as an evangelical from, if you like, the, the more modern part of a church, but the part of a church that really does have, sadly, still a massive issue with the LGBT community. They, they don't believe you can be Christian and gay. And so I was in a very prominent role and privately going through hell, trying to reconcile, as I say, my faith and my sexuality had taken me into hospital where my body had really cracked under the stress. I then had a breakdown and I went through years of conversion therapy. And when that sadly didn't work, that took me back into hospital, again with my body really cracking sadly under the strain, uh, another breakdown. And at that point, I thought I really needed, well, to be honest and true to myself, I came out very costly, sadly lost most of my, at the time, friends and, and certainly work prospects, a very dark time for me. But um, I survived it. And I, I believe that I was in a place, if you like, to try and speak into this debate. And in 2014, I started getting back involved with the Church of England. I was elected to something called General Synod, which is our parliament. And I suppose to many, I, I became quite a key voice as a senior Anglican who had come out and, and bore the scars of that. And in 2017, I led a debate within the Church of England, which brought us to a position where we called on the government to ban conversion therapy and to outlaw it within the Church of England. Sounds like you've been on an absolutely incredible journey. I mean, when it came to the forming of this panel, how did you come to be invited onto it and what were you told about its aims by the government? Well, I was encouraged to apply by, by various um, people who, who knew me. And indeed, we had quite an, a rigorous application process. They were keen to find experts in different fields so that the government could draw on the right expertise in order to implement its LGBT action plan. And obviously, one of the most prominent uh, commitments it made in its action plan was to end conversion therapy. And whilst we were originally appointed for two years, there was a sort of anticipated outcome that that would roll into four years. So I was quite shocked and indeed saddened to hear that the Secretary of State had decided to disband it a few weeks ago. And when did you start seeing the problems? What, what sort of, for you, was the greatest cause of concern and why did you decide to start speaking out? 
Well, I have been concerned for some time. It would be fair to say and it would be, <laughs> that there was a very different approach with this administration under Boris Johnson, uh, who'd appointed Liz Truss, the Secretary of State, to the panel. Mostly, my concerns centred around the lack of progress on any work towards banning conversion therapy. The government had been very reluctant to use the word ban. They hadn't met with survivors. They hadn't, it seemed to me, talked about all forms of conversion therapy. They had been only using the rhetoric of gay conversion therapy, which concerned me and many others about whether our trans colleagues would be protected. And what Liz Truss had said at the dispatch box also led me to worry that they were only thinking of protecting children, when we know actually young adults, particularly between the age of 19 and 24, are very susceptible to this. And indeed, they didn't seem to take on board our concerns about the concept of consent. You can't not consent to go through this if you live in a community which will disown you, which will reject you, which will tell you you're going to hell if you don't go through it. So the concept of consent just doesn't work. And so when we had the debate, thanks to a, an extraordinary petition that had been put together calling on the government to ban conversion therapy, which had got over 100,000 signatories. And because of that, there was what we call a petitions debate, which MPs from across the House, from across the nation, spoke very movingly about the need to ban, the need for legislation, which I was terribly encouraged by. But when the Minister for Equalities, Kemi Badenoch, replied to that debate, I want to assure you that we are committed to ending conversion therapy in the UK, and we take this issue very seriously. The Prime Minister has also reiterated recently that we want to end conversion therapy and underlined that this practice has no place in civilised society. Her answer proved to me that they hadn't listened to a word that we'd been saying over the last three years. There still wasn't a commitment to legislation. There still wasn't a commitment to trans people. There still wasn't a commitment to adults. The government will be exercising great care when considering what constitutes conversion therapy, what doesn't, and therefore how it should intervene. And I just, yeah, I thought the only option I had to try and draw a spotlight onto this was to resign, which is what I then did. And the question lots of people will be wondering listening to this is why? Why do you think that the government is dragging its feet so much on making conversion therapies illegal? Why do you think that they were taking this issue so unseriously? It is complex in that one has to define conversion therapy. But from quite early on, those of us who've been working to campaign for a ban have all come together to agree a definition, which is taking the best of international good practice. So it's a mix of a definition between Australia and Madrid. Although that's a reason that we've been given as a problem, I think it's not the right reason. I think the real reason, which has been mooted from the start, has been the concern that it touches on this complex area of freedom of religion or belief. And that, frankly, the government has got many evangelical MPs and advisers within its ranks who are not unbiased in this matter, who don't want to see a ban. And that to me also raises massive questions, you know, because our government has legislated to curb freedom of religion when it affects minority faiths. You know, we've looked at forced marriage, we've looked at female genital mutilation, we've looked at hate speech and extremist uh, views. 
But when it comes to harm done by the majority faith, and I speak as a Christian, then the government hasn't wanted to act. Now, the panel, as it existed once the resignations had happened, is obviously being disbanded, and there'll be a new panel with a new set of panellists that we're told will be announced within the next few weeks. What do you think the government will be able to do with this new LGBT plus advisory panel? Well, you're right that the Secretary of State has mentioned that she wants to have a new panel that can work, I believe, on the international conference that she's been so keen to host, which has obviously been thwarted by the pandemic. However, I and and many others have been quite outspoken about our concerns about having an international conference headed by a Secretary of State when we've taken so many backward steps and when we haven't made progress on the action plan. I can't see why one would go through all the the time and energy of, of vetting and going through an application process of putting a panel together to help with this international conference rather than carry on with with this group of senior experts. So I'll be fascinated to see if and when this international panel comes together and how they go about approaching it. But more importantly, I am concerned about the concept of this conference. Now, I should mention the government's defence of this subject. We heard from a spokesperson several weeks ago that the government was committed to building a country in which everyone, no matter their sexuality, race or religion, is free to live their lives as they choose. So I wonder if you can talk me through what you actually think will happen next and more importantly, what effect any further delay by the government in banning conversion therapies will have on the lives of people who have to suffer by living with it. Well, it's fascinating, isn't it? Their own response, I think, belied a lot of ignorance. We don't choose to be gay, you know, live the life we choose. I mean, that's such a a red line for so many of us. It's like a lightning conductor. They've failed to mention gender identity too. So whilst I I do think the Prime Minister does want to have a society which is an equal one that actually I, I think he does want to embrace and celebrate the LGBT community, I'm not convinced he's aware of the impact of various decisions being made within the Ministry for Women and Equalities that is really giving us different message to the LGBT community. I'm sadly not looking that optimistic. I think the international conference, if it happens, will be a wake-up call to them. And I think that the issues around our trans colleagues who are seeing some of the worst hate crime we've seen for years, that's going to sadly come to the fore more. And I think we'll have to wake up and do something about it. Jane Ozan, member of the Church of England's General Synod, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Aubrey. That was The Guardian's Aubrey Allegretti there, speaking with Jane Ozan. And that's all from us this week. Now, following the news that the jury in the Derek Chauvin case found the former Minneapolis police officer guilty of murdering George Floyd last summer, in tomorrow's episode of our sister podcast Today in Focus, Oliver Lachlan speaks to Anushka Astana about what this verdict means. So look out for that. And make sure to listen to Friday's episode of Politics Weekly Extra, as Jonathan Friedland speaks to former advisor to Bill Clinton, Paul Begala. They run through who Joe Biden has picked to join what the president is calling the most diverse administration in US history. Make sure to look out for that in the Politics Weekly feed. And last but not least, if you're a night owl and a film buff, you might be preparing to stay up late on Sunday to watch this year's Oscars. Did you know that one of The Guardian's documentaries has been nominated? Colette follows the story of 90-year-old Colette moran Catherine who confronts her past by visiting the German concentration camp where her brother was killed. To watch Colette and other Guardian documentaries, head to theguardian.com slash documentaries. 
But for now, I want to thank our guests, John Crace, Aubrey Allegretti, Peter Walker, Jane Ozan, Polly McKenzie and Salma Shah. The producer is Yolene Goffin and I'm Heather Stewart. Please look after yourselves and thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Before Shopify, were you wondering where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform, supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen.